Hi friends, welcome to the Bible Project Daily Podcast. You know, some years ago in the UK, the government put warning labels on cigarette packets. And since that time, probably due to an increase in litigation, warning labels have appeared on other products, lots of different things. If today, for instance, you get a takeaway coffee and a takeaway cup, you'll usually see a warning printed on the side of it somewhere saying that warning the contents may be hot. This happens, I am told, because somebody a few years ago sued McDonald's after spilling hot coffee in themselves. Even hair dryers come with warnings not to submerge them in water because of the proliferation of people using them in bathtubs. And I once saw a ladder in a DIY store with a label cautioning against using it at height. But probably the strangest to me was a packet of nuts that I bought in a supermarket only a couple of years ago. A packet of nuts, not nuts and something else, just nuts, which had on it the warning label, warning this product may contain nuts. Ubiquity of warning labels raises the question in my mind, if we have warnings for all these things in life, are there some things that we need to be warned about things that should contain a warning label but perhaps don't well i believe there is there's something that we carry around in our pocket that needs a warning label something that many people use every day and that my friends is money jesus cautioned himself against the dangers of wealth as recorded for us in the passage we're going to look at today luke chapter 16 picking up where we picked up last time at verse 14 and we're going to go right through to the end of the passage so welcome to the bible project daily podcast Okay, friends, welcome. Before we start today, I just want to point out that it may not be immediately obvious that the central theme of this whole passage, the whole remainder of this chapter we're going to look at today, actually revolves around money. It begins with a discussion between him and the Pharisees, but then nestled within it are some puzzling statements about divorce and you might think well what's that got to do with it and then it finishes with this story this parable as it's sometimes described so what we're going to do or i'm going to try and do today is unpack the whole passage together and explain why i believe the overarching theme of it is indeed money but its starting point is this rebuke from the pharisees where the pharisees are seen to say the pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So verse 14 opens up by telling us that these Pharisees, who remember they had a love of money, they heard Jesus' teachings and they respond negatively to it. So we need to remind ourselves exactly what did they hear. It's evident that it's based on what he's just spoken, the thing that we looked at in yesterday's episode, particularly I would suggest when he closed it off with this summary statement. Well, I'll read it for you again. Verses 13, he says, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, he said. Mammon's just another term for money. So the Pharisees, at that time, these guys, well, they enjoyed wealth. They enjoyed having it. They were wealthy, and they're ridiculing Jesus in his teaching here. 
The Greek word used in my translation is translated as sneering, which is pretty good. But what uh, it's meant to imply, which I think it does, is that it's they're ridiculing him with a certain element of scorn attached to it. Essentially, they're looking down their noses at Jesus and his teaching, and they're ultimately doing that because they believed wealth was a sign of divine favor. They couldn't look at Jesus and reconcile his physical poverty with their perception of God's blessing. So this situation still today presents a fascinating dichotomy, doesn't it? You've got a group of people who appear to have religious devotion intertwined with the fact they also have a real focus on and a love of money. It's not dissimilar to people today who have devout followers whose the focus of their religious faith is all about the accumulation of wealth. We do see this in the margins of some areas of the church today and what are popularly called prosperity teachers. Now, these are individuals that I would say step over the mark, the ones who constantly emphasize wealth and portray the accumulation of wealth with a sense of divine entitlement. The message often revolves around this reaping and sowing idea, but it's applied in the way it's taught by them about sowing financial seeds by making donations with the promise of prosperity in return. Now, when you look at some of the extreme versions of this, I've even heard one preacher suggest that Jesus himself was, was wealthy. I cannot see how anybody can read that into the Gospels. His conclusion has something to do with the fact that Judas was his treasurer. Anyway, in fact, another prosperity preacher I heard went so far as to declare that being poor was a sin. Clearly, that is not the truth. And that is stepping way beyond the line. But anyway, let's look at what's actually happening here. Here we have these religious leaders who themselves, they meticulously follow the external laws as revealed to Moses as they see it, but having added on lots of caveats, whilst at the same time being avid enthusiasts for the accumulation of wealth. And they have reached the point where they've convinced themselves that their wealth is a sign of God's favour while Jesus standing before them is, signif is signifying really the opposite, isn't he? So in response to this mindset, Jesus launches into this lengthy dialogue, discussion with illustrations about the concept of money, or more importantly, the love of money. And it starts with verse 16, when he says this, he says to them, you are the ones who justify yourself in the eyes of others, but God knows your heart. What people value highly is in fact detestable in the sight of God. So what Jesus says is in verse 15, he's confronting their tendency to justify themselves before men whilst reminding them that God sees into everyone's heart. Essentially, they're parading their self-righteousness through their acts of charity and they're seeking recognition of the fact that they're able to do this and that proof of God's blessing is their wealth. However, Jesus says God isn't impressed by these outward displays. He examines the motives behind what we do, the motives behind our actions. And in God's eyes, often what humans hold in high regard, in high esteem, especially in this specific situation, he's talking about the pursuit of wealth as being the core motivation and the flaunting of that wealth. He actually describes it as detestable. Abhorrent to God is the word used in some translations. 
it's worth noting that either word used in your translation, relevant point is in both the Hebrew and the Greek versions of the original scriptures, it's meant to reveal a level of actual disgust and repulsion in God's eyes. It's describing a visceral reaction to God when he sees this sort of thing. God's idea of equating spiritual wisdom, if you like, with wealth as evident of that is literally utterly repugnant to God. The very thought of justifying oneself by flaunting one's material possessions, it says literally, turns God's stomach. So in this passage, what we're witnessing is Jesus cleverly, almost a seamless transition from the introduction of the subject of money to the critique of how misguided this can become in the application in the lives of people. And this is setting the stage for a deeper explanation and exploration of this topic as the passage unfolds. And then we see in verse 16, the seemingly abrupt shift as Jesus references the law and the prophets. Now, why wonder, why does he suddenly bring that up? Why is he bringing scripture up at this point? It doesn't at first glance perhaps seem connected to what's going before. Anyway, let's listen to what he says. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of the pen to drop out of the law. Now, the phrase and the law and the prophets is meant to encompass and refer to the entirety of the Old Testament scriptures, emphasizing and including the law. Here in this verse lies one of the most intriguing verses in the Bible because it sheds for us on a deeper level than perhaps any other the relationship between the Old and the New Covenant. Jesus states that the law and the prophets, they're in force until the time of John the Baptist comes along and reveals the arrival of the kingdom. So there's profound theological significance in this verse. It's at one and the same time reveals but challenges the notion of a seamless continuation of the Old Testament into the New. Rather, it says, no, the administration of the laws changed. We're no longer under the law in that way. Its purpose was is now fulfilled and completed with John's arrival and his proclamation of the kingdom. And since John's ministry declared that Jesus is the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world, the kingdom of God has now been claimed then, that day, in the everyday. Things have changed forever. If you think about the opening of the Synoptic Gospels, you'll find in all of them this scripture of John arriving, heralding the kingdom, followed by the appearance and the baptism of Jesus, and then ultimately the big picture as he calls his disciples, and the kingdom of God is proliferated throughout the world. So in verse 17, Jesus emphasizes the unyielding validity of the principle behind the law in the sense that not even the tiniest stroke of the pen has disappeared. What he's saying, yeah, that's it, but now it's been fulfilled. The fulfillment, though now, is not by following legalistically the minutiae of it. It's fulfilled because Jesus fulfills it uh, through his ultimate purpose in life, his life, death, and resurrection and the forgiveness of sins. So this is meant to be a wake-up call to all those who misunderstand that the law, uh, don't grab hold of the fact that the law is fulfilled with him. 
And what he's saying here, what's the connection to money? He's saying, you guys, your preoccupation with wealth is blinding you to the spiritual truths that were already embedded in the scriptures. So Jesus is essentially saying, you're missing the point. The scriptures have found their fulfillment in me and the kingdom they promise is now here and it is fulfilled as people embrace faith and are reborn in to the kingdom. Your love of money, he says, that's the thing that is obscuring you from understanding the profound truth of what's going on around you. So at the outset, I revealed the need, for, I suggested a warning label for money, didn't I? And what's the warning is, well, it's a profound warning because it's a profoundly dangerous thing in the fact that you can be so enamored with the things of this world, with the pursuit of wealth and status through wealth, that you neglect the main spiritual reasons, the real meaning of life. And Jesus' message underscores cautioning, very much a warning label against the peril of prioritizing material gain over spiritual understanding. But interestingly, I would add, you don't have to be wealthy to fall into this trap. In fact, many would say that poorer people are more susceptible to this danger because they crave and they can unhealthily crave the very thing they lack. That's why I believe materialism is prevalent. Well, it's a sin in the world and it's a sin in the church. It's infiltrating the church, but it tends to thrive in places, in communities, or even in countries where, where wealth, where poverty is rife. Anyone rich and poor can fall into a trap of placing excessive values on possessions, but worse than that, de deriving our worth and our status from them and actually suggesting that they're evidence of spiritual wisdom and understanding and evidence of the blessings of God. Money has a way, in fact, Jesus is saying here, of blinding us, in fact, to those spiritual realities. Now again, the passage takes a sort of another strange turn. Let me try and unravel it for you when Jesus suddenly, for no apparent reason, brings this discussion of divorce into the equation. Verse 18 tells us this. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now you might say, what's this got to do about what's being taught here? Well, you could say on a superficial level that money often plays a role in divorce. That's a valid observation. However, I am suggesting that there's another much, much deeper level to what's going on here. It's about the love of money blinding us to the point where we willfully misunderstand scripture and how that affects our everyday lives in the decision he makes. And he uses the concept of marriage and divorce to illustrate it. Now, to grab the significance of Jesus' statement on divorce in this situation, we must understand the context into which he's talking, the context of the time. Rather than just go with the gut reaction, as some seem to go these days, about it being, why is it so tough on women? Why is it, you know, that sort of reaction? It's helpful to understand that Jesus' intention here, due to what was going on, in the situation he faced in that day, his intention, his motivation was to protect women and find a safe, create, nurture, a safe environment for both men and women to enjoy marriage and raise children within it. 
you see the prevailing attitude towards marriage and divorce at that time had become, well, how can I say it, shockingly casual. Divorce was as easy as one person signing a piece of paper today. We think it's got easier today. We have no idea how, much, how simple it was in that time. Rabbis, not all of them, but some rabbis at that time, it's written down, there's evidence of it that they permitted divorce for such trivial reasons as burning a meal or speaking disrespectfully, having a loud voice in that a neighbor could hear what a wife was saying. It was given as a, a fair reason for divorce. And the situation about how easily men were divorcing wives for trivial reasons, even just because they found a more, another woman more pleasing in the eyes, this had led to a situation that was so desire that many women at that time were hesitant about whether they should marry, to the point where the family life in Israel was suffering and the society was being damaged by it. So that's the connection, friends, in between verses 16 and 17. It's now clearer. Jesus is exposing how a warped understanding of Scripture, a, a warped focus on financial things, can distort your perspective on how you live in everyday life. And he uses the example of what's going on in marriage and divorce at that time. So the principle outlined in the first two verses about money, he says, informs the specific application of how we live our lives in the example given here in verse 18. That must stand as a sobering reminder to us today is how our interpretation of Scripture can profoundly impact our lives and even the societies we live in as a whole. So Jesus says, assertion and this example is clear he says by disregarding the sanctity of marriage and divorcing for no reason doing that you're as good as committing adultery it sounds absolute doesn't it let me just add the caveat that jesus does also suggest in other explanations and explorations of this issue in other passages he allows for exceptions Matthew chapter 5, for instance, verse 19, he mentions fornication as one partner outside of marriage as grounds for divorce. And additionally, in 1 Corinthians 7, he discusses separation for an unbelieving spouse is possible if the unbelieving spouse desires it. So in other words, a married couple, one is a Christian, one isn't, and the one who isn't a Christian doesn't want to stay married to the Christian because they don't like the fact they've either converted or they don't like the fact that they're choosing to live a life that is honoring to God. Then it says, Jesus says that that situation, the woman or the man is, a, is allowed that the married partner be allowed to go elsewhere, effectively to divorce. So in my view, there are of course certain conditions and if they're met, divorce and remarriage is permissible for a Christian believer but not in the way it's being talked about here. Jesus' stance in this passage on a superficial reading may seem, uh, may seem strict, but we've got to understand it's tailored to address the specific audience on that day's scriptural misconceptions that he's dealing with and applying there. And in the context of the passage, we see he acknowledges, yeah, the complexity of marriage relationships, but he's saying their focus on the material things, on wealth building, rather than on 
on focusing on their love and expression of the love of God has led them to start to misunderstand Scripture. Yes, but we go beyond that. Start to their decision making, if you like, has become flawed on the basis of it. Now we have another one of these left turns, another ex- unexpected shift in the story, and we hear the story about two men, one who is declared to be well in heaven by Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom, as it's called, and the other is situated to be in Hades. And this is what is often described as a parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Okay, the plan was to continue straight into the story of Lazarus and the rich man, but I have a, a hospital appointment this morning and I'm realizing I'm running out of time. I'm only about halfway through and I think it's going to, it would make it a very long episode as well. So I'll pick up at this point tomorrow, but please bear in mind that the two parts are very much linked together and I'll make sure I'll remind us of that. So please join me again tomorrow on the Bible Project Daily Podcast. Okay, that's the first half of this episode, which is going to be a double header. I'll be back again tomorrow to finish off uh, the section, I believe, which all belongs as one narrative passage. And just a quick reminder that if you're not subscribed to this podcast, then why not do that by clicking wherever it is you get your podcasts from? It won't cost you a penny, and that way you'll make sure you never miss another single episode. Also, please be aware I create an episode notes page with a breakdown of what I've said. And at the moment, I'm producing full transcripts of everything that I do, making freely available on the Buzzsprite and as many of the other podcast platforms that will accept active links through to that place. If you're not seeing those free resources, then why not visit me on buzzsprite.com where you can access that, plus links to the socials and the other places. There's also a place there where you can support the podcast through Buzzsprout, but I would, as I've said before, much prefer that you would support this ministry through Patreon if you feel that's what God is calling you to do. Because it's there, for complicated reasons, it's much better for me. I'm able to access those resources and I'm also able, and you are able to communicate with me directly through the contact button if you want to leave feedback and just to reach out in any way. So why not consider being part of this ministry and supporting me, ideally through Patreon? But having said all that, the main thing is I'm really glad each and every one of you are here today and have made the decision to join with me in this journey that we're doing together through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. So with that said, I'll leave it there for today and I hope you'll be back tomorrow where we finish off this passage. So I'll just say bye-bye for now.